0: It was really, really lonely in the sense that at the time, there really weren't a lot of Black people that I saw running, really weren't a lot of people that looked like me out there at all. I just remember running these races, and they were just exceedingly, exceedingly filled with just white people. And not that that's a bad thing, but I never felt like there was anybody I could connect with or identify with. I didn't know anybody, none of my friends ran, so I was the only one that ran. So my early race experiences was I would run, I would recover after the race, and then i grab my stuff and i go home.
1: Welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable, a running podcast where we shake out and purposely go off track on any and everything related to our favorite hobby. Get ready to get uncomfortable along with our guests, because growth only happens outside of your comfort zone. Here are your hosts, Inez Bebea, Jamie Chen, and Nathan Schiller. Hi, I'm Nathan Schiller.
2: Hola, I'm Inez Bebea. Hello, I'm Jamie Chen,
3: and welcome to another episode of Let's Get Uncomfortable.
1: Our guest today is Devon Cully, a captain with Brooklyn Track Club, a member of the Black Marathoners Connection, and an ultra-marathoner. Devon's first ultra was a 50-miler in Prospect Park, Brooklyn, in 2021. That's 15 loops of a park with a hill that takes no prisoners.
2: Devon has always been one of those runners that you simply define as crazy, because who wants to run 15 loops of Prospect Park? In any case, I got to see a lot of that up close when we were teammates with Brooklyn Tri Club. Also, full disclosure, we don't plan any softball questions because we were teammates. Devon has run 37 marathons, and now it's also starting to run ultra marathons.
3: Mm-hmm. But before we put Devon on the hot seat, let's start with our sports legacy segment. And I thought about some truly notable figures that many are aware of today, like Jesse Owens, Ted Corbett. But let us highlight Robert Earl Johnson, who some call the first great African-American distance runner where in cross-country Paralympics in 1924, he placed third, and in 1923, he won a 22-mile race in Detroit with a time of two hours and nine minutes. In 1924, he won a 10-mile race in 54 minutes and 29 seconds. Oh, whoa. He competed twice as an Olympian in 1920 and 1924, but well, he spent his later years as a sports writer in Pittsburgh, and he coached an African-American sandlock baseball team. So Devon, welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable. What got you started in running? Was there anyone in your family or your extended family who ran?
0: First of all, thank you for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Your podcast is is definitely one of my favorites because you guys are not afraid to ask questions that make people uncomfortable. As far as I started running, no, there was nobody in my family that ran. Growing up, I was a big baseball fan. I played a year at JV Baseball. I wasn't that good. So I knew I wasn't good enough to make varsity baseball. So I was like, okay, I need to do something. I saw the track team somewhere for indoor season. I was like, "Eh, you know, I like to run, you know, I think I can run pretty well. So let me give that a try. So I started my junior year of high school, I started indoor track. And for the most part, I've been running ever since.
1: Devon, why did you decide that track was your sport? And you ran the 100 and 200 meters. So those are quick races where Speed is everything, of course, but technical speed is the main thing. And now you're doing stuff totally different. We just want to get a sense of how you came to be an ultramarathoner.
0: I was a skinny kid. I wasn't good enough to play basketball. So it just seemed like a good fit for me, at least to give it a try. You know, I could have tried it and fallen on my face. But I was like, okay, I think I can try that. I definitely was a, a speedster. I did all the short stuff, 400s, 200s, 100s, the relays. And I was perfectly happy running short stuff. We used to always joke because there was always like a competition. Uh, Not a competition, but we used to give each other grief on the track team. The sprinters, we used to always make fun of the people that ran longer distance because we were just like, they're just mad that they just weren't naturally born fast. And they would be mad at us. I mean, not mad, but they wouldn't be that impressed with us. They'd give us grief. They'd be like, oh, wow, you guys run for 10, 20 seconds. So what? (laughs) You know, why don't you try running longer than that? So we always had a good back and forth with each other, but you know, like you said, for the sprints, it starts to become more technical. It's not just simply run as fast as you can from point A to point B. That's a part of it, but there's a technical piece of it also. So starting to learn all that and the more I got to run, I, I just found something I was good at and I really enjoyed. And Lord knows I'd say all the time, young teenage Devon that started in high school, he would have never in his life thought that older Devon would be running marathons and ultra-marathons.
2: So we can go back a little bit, go back to high school. You attended FDR High School in Bensonhurst, which back then was a large Italian-American population. You were there around the time of Yusuf Hawkins' murder. For those who don't know, Yusuf Hawkins was a 16-year-old child from East New York, shot and killed by a mob of teens on August 23rd, 1989. Yusuf, a friend, and his brother went to Bensonhurst to buy a car. Given that you were commuting to that area every day for high school, and then also competing on the team, how did the murder impact the atmosphere of the school, and even when you race for the school?
0: That was quite a time, as you can possibly imagine. We're talking about New York City in the 80s, which is a completely different entity from the New York City that we are in now in 2022. The uh, race relations were much worse back then than they are now. This was during the beginning when drugs were really, really still kind of around the crack era. So there was a lot of drugs and a lot of violence. So New York was just a very dangerous, wild town. Nothing like it is now. So when that happened, obviously being a a Black kid who was going to school not far from where Yusuf was murdered, that definitely caught our attention. It was something all of us as Black kids, we all talked about. The Black kids in FDR, we were the super duper minority. We were always aware of where we were and the environment that we were in, you know, I like to describe it as there was just an unwritten rule during that time where there was like a circle, a radius around the school where if you were within that radius during a certain amount of time before school started and after school got out, for the most part, you were okay. Nobody was going to bother you because they pretty much figured you went to the school and that's why you were there. Once you got past that time, once it started to get dark, once it started to become evening, you're out in that area by yourself or you're with a group of other people who look like you, there's definitely a possibility you could run into some people who are not going to be happy that you're there. So you have to be, you have to be very careful. It's kind of crazy when you think about it, but you know, when you're in that environment during that time, it is what it is. We never really had any major racial issues in school when I was there, at least I didn't have anything. Luckily when we were competing, we never really had anything. At least I didn't do in track. We competed against a few other schools that were in the Bensonhurst neighborhood, were in Sheepshead Bay. You know, we create we competed against all different schools, but luckily during track, we never really had any issues. And then traveling back and forth, again, we've lucked out because we never really had any issues. So we were fortunate there, but it's just kind of an unwritten rule. School gets out, get out at two, you have practice. Sometimes you get out of practice at five, 5.30. It starts to get six, 6.30, you probably need to be on that bus and carry your butt to where you live because you never know. All it takes is one time and one person or one group of people you run into, and then you have a situation. And I loved my time at FDR. I've met a lot of great people, a lot of great times, great memories. But that didn't help my mother. My mother definitely freaked out because that was maybe like two weeks before school started. So that first day when school started, we had a bunch of press and the reporters were there talking to different people about the incident and everything. It was uh, you know, an emotionally charged time, but that's kind of how things were back then in New York, unfortunately.
2: So what was the makeup of the team given that the school was like largely white? And then if it was mixed, like, did the coach have a conversation about what do you do when you guys are out of the neighborhood and competing with other schools?
0: So the team was at least 50% minority, probably more overall. I think the team was probably... At least 50% Black people. I think we had a couple of Hispanics on the team. We had a couple of white guys. Coach never really had to have that conversation with us because once practice started and when we were around each other, none of that outside drama affected us as the team. We were all great teammates and we pulled for each other and we liked each other. So we didn't have to stop and um, kind of address anything because we never had that tension on the team. Most of the time when we traveled, we traveled together as a team to the different meets. Luckily, we never had any drama. Um, in a lot of ways, I realized how fortunate we were. I don't think I kind of realized it at the time, that- you know, we never encountered anything, but we, we were just very fortunate.
3: And it's really good that I think a lot of the high school kids were kept um, isolated from a lot of things that were happening, particularly in the late 80s and the 90s. And I was just reflecting with Nathan how it was a scary time for young black men. You know, I don't know if you remember the Howard Beach incident with Michael Griffin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was shortly right before that. And that was just something simple. Their car broke down. And then, you know, that poor man, right. the, boy, the boy was killed. And you had the Crown Heights riots also. Yes. yes. So yeah. With Leverett You insane. know, to the, the race Cato. relations. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah Cato, you know, you had um, Renard Getz, the subway shooter, when he shot the, the yes. kids on the train that were trying to rob him. It was high, high tensions back then. And, you know, then on top of it, aside from the racial stuff, when we start dealing with drugs and cracks, you just never know when a crackhead might roll up, on, roll up on you and try to knock you in the head and take what you have or rob you or anything. We always like to say it's just, it's not the Disney New York that we're in now. It's a whole, whole different environment.
3: Do you think that those experiences influenced you to consider historically Black college and universities? I know that you attended North Carolina a T t University in Greensboro. What made you decide to go to an HBCU? You
0: yeah, know, so those things definitely influenced my choice. Going to FDR definitely led me to an HBCU. Being in, a, in an environment for a long time where you're the super minority, you definitely feel that otherness. The majority is what's accepted and what's the norm. If you have different interests or different things which are normal to you or people like you and it's not necessarily normal to others, sometimes you get tired of making a reference and they don't know what the hell you're talking about or you're trying to explain something and they're not quite grasping what it is you're saying. After a while, that can kind of wear on you. When it came time to go to college, I mostly wanted to go to a school that had a really good business program because I was studying accounting. I came across North Carolina A&T, which had a really, really good business program. Once I saw it was an HBCU, I was like, oh, wait a minute. I get to go to school with, with nothing but Black people? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, <laughs> you know? just for Just for having that feeling of just not being other, whether it's cultural things or whether it's musical things or just whatever it is. It will be nice to be around certain people where I don't have to explain everything. They'll just get it because we're similar in certain ways. Clearly not going to be totally the same, but we'll be similar in a lot of ways. It was exactly what I needed. I think high school me still trying to figure out who he was and what he wanted and what defined me as a person. I think the ability to be around people who looked like me and understood a lot of what I went through on a consistent basis day in, day out. I think that definitely helped me, helped me go in the right direction, helped me figure out who I was. And it was just comforting because it hadn't happened before. I think for the majority of schools I had been in, I don't think um, most of them were majority Black. So being able to be in the school environment that was new
3: and it was fantastic. So, since you ran in high school, did you run in college?
0: I actually did not run in college, mostly because I told myself from high school that I wasn't good enough to run in college. So I never saw it. So I never did it. I kind of have tried. There was one semester, maybe junior year. I kind of tried out for the track team, but I was way out of shape because I hadn't been running. I tried for a little bit, but it just wasn't working out. So I stopped. Realistically, I, I don't think I was at a point where I could balance being a student and being an athlete. I don't think I was mentally at a point where I could do both successfully. It probably was a good thing that I did, but I could I, now I know I totally could have. But psychologically, I psyched myself out. It's one of the few things I kind of regret.
2: So even though everybody on the team really look like you, you yeah. still psyched yourself out of that?
0: Absolutely. You know, I just didn't have a lot of confidence back then in a lot of things in life. So that was just one. Even though I had run and I was a successful one, I was like, "Dad, yeah, you're you're not good enough to run at college. So, yeah, I kind of kind of psyched myself out of that.
2: But then what made you get back to running?
0: Not too long after I graduated, I felt really blah. You know, I didn't think I was in good shape. I was a little underweight. I had lost weight. I'd always thought of myself as an athlete, but I just wasn't in good shape. So one day I just decided, okay, you know what? I have to get back in shape because I don't like how I feel. There was a park a couple of blocks from my house, Boston Park, that had a big court area where they used to play softball, you know, and they had the handball wall and everything. It was a big court. So one morning I went running and I did maybe two loops of that park, of the courtyard. And I felt good. And then I think I waited maybe a couple of days and I did it again. And I waited a couple days and I did it again. And that was in 1995. And I haven't stopped running since.
1: Can you tell us about your first race, not on the track, but as a distance runner?
0: I'm I'm, going to date myself with the facts on this one. But I had been running a little bit and I was like, okay, you know, I think I want to do a race. I saw an ad in the newspaper. Okay. I saw an ad in the newspaper for a race in Central Park. I think it might've been like Nike run for the parks. I think it was a, a four mile or a five miler. I can't remember. But I was like, hey, that would be pretty cool. I haven't run a race in a while. I would like to do that. So I went and I signed up for the race and it was so much fun. I had missed that competition because I love to compete. So just getting out there and uh, there's a bib and a clock and a bunch of people out there running. It was so exciting and it felt so good. That was the first one. And then after that, obviously, I had to run another one. So then I started looking for other races, and that was the beginning of it all. Thanks to an ad in a newspaper.
1: <laughs> so you kind of got
0: addicted. Oh yeah, definitely. I didn't race a lot back then, but I would run a couple of days a week, and I just loved it. It was just so much fun. Even though I started running longer than I used to, a couple of miles, two miles, three miles, four miles, you know, slowly extending it out. Was definitely wasn't sprinting anymore, but I was like, wow, you know, this isn't so bad. You know, I used to think running this long was terrible and pointless and stupid, <laughs> but the more I did, it's like, oh, it's kind of fun. So then I just just started going from there.
1: Like you said earlier, the kid version of you never would have thought that you would have done distance, but suddenly you find out that you're doing it and just enjoying it. You take us through your head, especially because there are not that many black distance runners. So are you kind of coming back to being an outlier in that space a little bit?
0: For me, there were a few feelings. So on one hand, it was motivating to be able to do something that I never thought I could do because it's like I'm doing things and running fast farther than I ever thought possible. So I'm like, okay, if I never thought I could do this, what else? Just overall in life, what else could I do that I never thought I could do? The other side of it for me and my experience was that it was really, really lonely in the sense that at the time there really weren't a lot of black people that I saw running really weren't a lot of people that looked like me out there at all i just remember running these races and they were just exceedingly exceedingly filled with just white people and not that that's a bad thing but i never felt like there was anybody i could connect with or identify with i didn't know anybody none of my friends ran so i was the only one that ran so my early race experiences was I would run, I would recover after the race, and then i grab my stuff and i go home. You know, that I wasn't talking with anybody. I wasn't linking up with anybody. I would just go handle my business and get out of there. And that went on for, for quite a few years. Once I discovered New York know, Roadrunners and I started doing Roadrunners races, that pretty much was my experience. And, you know, you would look for other minorities out there and you would see a small handful and... You know, if you saw somebody and you make eye, eye contact, you know you definitely give them the head nod. The head nod is universal, but you always have to give them some sort of acknowledgement. But there just there wasn't a lot of us, can so ask, I know.
3: Can I ask yeah. you why do you think that is? I mean, the, that's the early millennium, and why do you think? And you just said you didn't see a lot of your friends out there. What mm-hmm. was the difference? What makes you different?
0: A lot of times in most minority neighborhoods, you didn't come across people who ran for fun. Running generally, for people who are athletes and they're not running, they play other sports, running is usually punishment. They mess up, they do something wrong. What does coach do? Coach makes them go run. And nobody looks forward to that. Those those generally aren't fun miles that they're doing. So I think a lot of times, most people don't look at it as something just fun or recreational. Most athletes look at it as punishment. But in our neighborhood, you just didn't see people out just running just to be running. You know, they might be running from something or they might be chasing somebody, (laughs) you know, to be totally honest. But they're not just out, hey, let's go get this 5K or let's go run around. Let's go run from here to here. That just didn't happen in our neighborhood. Kids do what they see. And you saw kids playing football and basketball and baseball, sports like that. And you just didn't see people running. They weren't exposed to it. And I think it still had that negative connotation to it. Cause you, you know, who, who runs for fun? I'm not just going to go. So you want me to just go out and run a mile or two miles just cause get out of here. I'm not doing that, <laughs> you know? So as a runner, luckily I was exposed since I was running track, it made sense to me. Okay. We're just going to go off on, and you know what? I'm going to go get these miles in. It was perfectly logical thinking for me, but I think for a lot of people, that just was kind of, okay, that's kind of crazy. I don't I don't know what that is. It's changed a lot since back then, but I think that's part of it. You have to be able to visualize and see people who do stuff because it's easy for somebody who sees it all the time to say, hey, you can do that. It's much harder for people who never see it to sometimes grasp being able to do something if they never see or can find somebody they can identify with that does something.
3: It's almost like the same as when you said you went to an historically Black college because you now are surrounded by people who look like you and they understand some of the idiosyncrasies that maybe black people go through so i get it like they keep seeing successful black athletes playing football and basketball but you don't see the money coming in for successful black runners
0: right when you think of black runners historically you pretty much see your sprinters now you have more coverage of a wider range of events. When I was coming up back then, most of the celebrities were really the sprinters because most of your African middle distance runners, they weren't really celebrities or known to us here in America. You know, it was really your Carl Lewis's, your Flo Joes, it's all your sprinters, your Edward Moses, who did the 400 meter hurdles. It's all short distance people were the popular ones. Once you start to get to middle distance and long distance, those people weren't popular. They had some Africans who were winning marathons back then. But if it wasn't an American winning a marathon, you probably didn't see them or they didn't get talked about back then. That plays a part in it too, just that exposure and who you see.
1: You didn't even mention Michael Johnson, the best and fastest American male speedrunner ever. You are
0: are correct. Shame on me. You are absolutely (laughs) correct. Okay. Gold shoe, gold medal winning Michael Johnson. Absolutely. The 200, 400. Absolutely. But seeing that again, that goes to show, you know, just try to name someone from back then that ran above 400 meters. What was it like when you finally got into the half marathon distance? My first one was the Bronx half. So I had been slowly building up and running. So I starts like, okay, I think I can finally try a half. So again, we're talking late nineties, early two thousands, New York, roadrunners most people here in new york know new york roadrunners has the five borough series where they do a race in each borough well back then it was a half marathon series so every the five borough series was a half marathon in all five boroughs but the bronx one was in the summertime I think, I think it was june or july so i finally signed up for that one i was ready for it and i trained for it i went and ran
2: Wait, wait, they're um, like yeah. a July half marathon in the Bronx in New yes. York City. Yes. In yes. the heat that it is New York City in July.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. So if I remember correctly, I may get the months wrong. Brooklyn was first. I think Brooklyn was I don't think Brooklyn was always in May. I don't I don't think it was. I remember Queens used to be in like April. Um, Brooklyn was either March or May. I can't remember. The Bronx was in July. Manhattan was in August. And then Satin Island was in October. So the Bronx half and the New York half were ovens all the time. Okay. As you all know, running in New York, hot heat and humidity, it was just bananas. Okay. So Eventually, they changed all that because people started complaining. So that's why it's
3: kind of in different times now. They must have Um, forgot about that because Brooklyn Half was pretty painful. (laughs) I think that has short-term memory, NYRR. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
0: Oh, my goodness. But yeah, the Bronx, we ran up kind of the course now that it's a 10-miler, but we started further north. So we started and ended at Lehman College. So that's where it was. So it was a hot day. I ran pretty well. I think I finished like 205. I was so proud of myself that I finished the race, crossed the finish line, found a spot in the grass and laid down for like 30 minutes (laughs) because my body was wrecked. and I felt awful, but I was really, really proud of myself. Like with most distance races, you know, you do it once, you get a couple of days away from the pain and you start to examine it and you look at it. It's like, okay, I think I could do this better. So let me try to do another one. So I signed up for another one and then I signed up for another one. So the halves were my goal for a while. Honestly, that was my, as far as I wanted to go. I didn't want to run anything more than a half because I was happy with that. And then after doing a few more halves and once I started to finish and I wasn't dead, I was like, man, I feel pretty good. I still could run some more. I think that was when the idea of running a marathon, the seed was planted. So I kind of kicked it around for a little while. And then eventually I decided, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. So I think I did the nine plus one. Even though back then, I don't think there was the plus one. I think you just had to do the nine races. And then I finally decided to do a marathon. And my first marathon was New York Marathon in 2006.
2: I feel like we've gotten a view of what New York City was like back in the 90s and early 2000s because, first of all, you mentioned an ad in the newspaper.
0: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> you mentioned half marathons in the Bronx, you know, like the five or Sirius, I guess, back then with NYRR. So right. that means you've been running with that, this organization for a very long time. Yeah. So, how has that organization grown? Where do you see it that it needs to improve to attract more people who, again, might still not see themselves in mm-hmm. running? Yes.
0: Yeah, so they have changed. Roadrunners has definitely grown tremendously. Again, to date myself, you know, Roadrunners, they used to give out a, a magazine. I don't remember if the magazine came out quarterly or if it came out monthly, but they used to put the race results in the back of the magazine for every race. So you could do that. When they're doing races and there's only a couple hundred people that are running the race. Imagine that. Roadrunners, which now has like 10,000 runners every race. Back then, the races were so small, you could easily go sign up day of and get your race results in the magazine. So the size of the organization has grown tremendously. I give them a lot of credit. So before we criticize, I will give Roadrunners a lot of credit. It's not easy putting on big races. And for the most part, I think they do a pretty good job of organizing and putting on big races. E- obviously, everything's not perfect. There's always going to be things that go wrong. But for the most part, the courses are measured the right way. For the most part, there's hydration on the course. Your results are usually accurate. You don't really have a lot of issues with road runners races, at least in my opinion. Now, As far as growing and getting more people to be involved, I think they have gotten some into the community. I think the open run program they have is a very good program to get people beginning to run. The only way to honestly and truly diversify your membership is to consistently and be devoted to going into the neighborhoods of the people who are not in your organization and having a presence there and showing people and being involved in the community. You have to have your physical hand and touch in these neighborhoods. That's not the only way, but I think that's the biggest way, because it has to be kind of a normal thing for people to see. And, you know, Roadrunners runners. you know they get they get so much money and they get so many members from the more affluent parts of the city i think they the rest of the parts of this town are overlooked and you want to make a change have some races in some of these in in some of these neighborhoods let people come outside their house and see these races. Running in Central Park is great. We don't always, they don't have all their races in Central Park. Where's the races in Bedstock? Where's the races in um, Jamaica? Where's the races in Brownsville? There's a bunch of minority neighborhoods. Where's the races in Chinatown? You know, there's thousands of neighborhoods where there are plenty of minorities who make up a large portion of this city when it comes to putting your organization out there and you really want to get people to see what you're about and what you do. That's a a simple, simple solution. Just take your events there, invest money in these communities and in these organizations and then these people who you want to be part of your organization. If you do that, the people will come. So they really, to me, that's one of the things that they need to work on. I think Roadrunners certainly got a rude awakening come 2020 because they got called out on a lot of crap, deservedly so. There was a lot of performative words during 2020, and Roadrunners was one of the organizations that was called out about that. Hopefully, with some of the new leadership they have, they've learned from that and they have learned to go to these neighborhoods and these people and get involved and get them involved. Only time will tell.
2: So from the Nike race to now races in, in NYR and then Nike Run Club and being a member of the Tri Club 2020 and talking about leadership and what changes need to be seen in other communities outside of like Central Park. So now you are a captain of Brook and Tri Club. You joined in 2017. So why did you say yes to being part of the leadership circle? And is your approach to leadership an Avengers against Ultron or Avengers Endgame. <laughs> I had to get a Marvel reference in my here somewhere.
0: Of course, so, of course. So <laughs> That's buddies. what we do. <laughs>
2: exactly. It's all connected. It's all it's part all of the plan. It's all part of the plan. <laughs> That's so, right. Why did you say yes to leadership? And what is it that you guys are trying to do? Like you said, NYR needs to be more involved in the communities. What is Brooklyn Working Tri Club looking to do?
0: so that's a good question when they asked me to be a captain i definitely said yes because i've been running with brooklyn track long enough to where i feel like i have some skin in the game with the team i've seen the team change when i first joined the team back in 2017 it was really small it was a small group of us maybe 30 40 of us and then when we look now we're at a point now where we have over 500 members. We're not as large as some of the other teams, you know, Central Park, Track Club, or some of these other ones, but that's a pretty good-sized team. And I've seen some of the changes in the team. You know, it's a different dynamic when it's a small group and you know almost everybody's name. You're familiar with each other. You see each other at practice all the time. You have a, a familiarity with each other. And then as the team gets a little bit more successful and more people know the team name, and then with social media blowing up and the team having a presence, people seeing you there, you have more people joining, team gets a lot bigger. And then as it gets bigger, the culture starts to change a little bit. So when they asked me to be captain, I definitely said yes, because being one of the OGs of the team and seeing the change, I think I have a little perspective as to how everything is going in the team. Plus, me personally, I'm big on communicating with everybody. There are your super fast people on the team. There are your quote unquote average runners. And then there's people who feel like they're super slow. The back of the Packers. I like to interact and represent everybody because that's what it's all about. We are, we're all we all here to run and we should be supporting each other and cheering each other on and having each other's back. That's one of the things I look for in an organization and being with a team. It's one of the things I like. There's people are all different races and ethnicities and abilities, but we're all Brooklyn track. So we should all be pulling for each other. So I was happy to accept one of the captaincies and to bring that attitude to the team every day and to bring that to leadership because, you know, leadership doesn't always have a pulse or feel for what's going on and what people are saying and thinking they should, but they don't. You know, we talked about 2020, the entire world just blew up in 2020. And there were times where I felt maybe the team could have been a little bit more proactive and maybe could have said some things or maybe tried to do some things to address some of what was going on, because this is how some of us as members, especially the minority members, we were dealing with a lot. Every day was heavy. And sometimes when you feel like your organization is not addressing that, or is not saying anything, you definitely feel that and you discuss that. I think being a part of leadership is being able to have those types of conversations and bring those issues up. And I think the environment we're in now as an organization that has Brooklyn in its name and is representing the borough, I think it's important for us to represent all aspects of the borough. We have a lot of people, members who are from Williamsburg and who are from Greenpoint and who are from these quote unquote affluent neighborhoods, but that's not all of the borough. You can't represent Brooklyn and only represent and only focus on or only have people from these two sections. That's not quite how it works. That's the case then, you know, you should have the neighborhood in, in your name as opposed to the whole borough. At least that's how I look at it. So to me, it's important to try to get more into the community, to interact with the community. If you're gonna represent Brooklyn, represent all of Brooklyn.
2: Have you guys done anything yet in that regard?
0: We're still working on it. We're working on some things. The team has moved into becoming non now. So there's a whole process that goes along with that. And that kind of changes a little bit how we move. But we're having discussions and we're working on some things. So just stay tuned. We have some things coming. It's still percolating right now.
2: So we'll get the exclusive for this.
0: You already know. You got the <laughs>
2: high line
0: Okay. We will talk. I will definitely let you guys know. You already know.
2: And also, I want to give a shout out to the OGs that you know you're an OG because you ran around the fence of McCarran because (laughs) the track was closed for construction for I think all of the 2017 training season. So, like Um, that crew, yes.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you're an OG. If you ran with us at East River before it was renovated, and then they renovated East River, then we went to McCarran, we ran there, then they renovated McCarran. So same thing, we were running around outside of McCarran. That's when you know you had some skin in the game. We we, we got some stories. We've we been around a little bit.
3: <laughs> well, you guys are about to have an influx because they're shutting down East River Track again. Yeah, yeah. Again. I- I mean, when they shut down McCarran, I just went to Astoria Park, and let's just say that's a—I shouldn't even say that loudly on this podcast because I don't want people to know about Astoria and its right, brand new right. renovation. That's a
0: hidden gem, especially if they did a good job on that renovation. That new track is nice. I loved it. I—I
3: wow. um, I actually listened to your words in terms of the composition of the membership of Brooklyn Track Club. Some of the members come from certain neighborhoods, and how you feel that. Brooklyn Track Club has the name Brooklyn in it. And in yeah. your eyes, Brooklyn is more representative of other faces other than, I'd say, the gentrified parts of Brooklyn. Right. How do you feel that your leadership can influence that, that the composition of the team can therefore include more people from other parts? I know I tried to join Brooklyn Track Club last year, but I didn't get a chance to because it said that you're not taking members.
0: Yeah, we hit points where we they close membership, where, where it's capped off. Once we hit that number, yeah, membership, it, it does get closed. So you kind of have to check back in periodically, unfortunately, because they have a number. And once we hit that number, they automatically shut it down. But to answer your question, I, I think there's a couple of ways. I think the, the first way we can influence it is to, like I said, to have these conversations with the leadership team. And to be able to point these issues out and bring them to the table, because if nobody's talking about it, nothing is going to change. Being able to sit down with the leadership and bring these issues and have a voice in some of the decisions that are being made as far as goals and projects and stuff. I think that plays a part. I think that can help diversify the team also. Also, I think it's important to be a face out there because. I know from talking to a lot of minority runners one of the things we generally talk about when you talk about running groups is the makeup and what we see so if you only see people who don't look like you there's naturally a little bit of apprehension at least naturally to me some people may not see well why why would there be apprehension if you're a runner you should be able to just run anywhere and in theory that is true but in reality this is america and in america You have to feel wanted in certain circles and you don't always feel wanted in in every circle. So if you're thinking about joining a team, there are people who will just say, hey, I want to run and this is the run club or team that's here. So I'm going to be part of that team. I'm going to go run with them. There are people who do that. But then there's other people who will look and be like, man, that's a large team and I can count on one hand the number of minorities that are in that team. I don't know if I necessarily want to run with them. Being able to be seen and seen for people to know that you're out there, that there are people of color, minorities who are parts of the team, and being able to sit down and have those conversations and be honest about those conversations. Because people have definitely said to me, hey, Devon, how do you you run with a group that's so exceedingly white? You don't feel uncomfortable? And then I, I tell them the truth. I don't feel uncomfortable. I'm definitely aware that there's not a lot of minorities there. But you know what? When we're out there practice and we're running. 800s and we're running 400s, I'm not thinking about the makeup of the team. I'm thinking about trying to kill these reps and get this thing over with so that I can catch my breath and relax and tell some jokes afterward. You know, I'm really not thinking about the makeup. But it would be disingenuous for me to be like, hey, that's not a factor for some people if somebody asked me about it to not talk about it. It's definitely something as minorities we talk about. That's one of the conversations we have being honest and open with people and you a lot of times you just have to try to convince people to give it a try there are people who will give it a try there are people who they're just not comfortable and they won't give it a try then to me it's really about running and growing the sport of running so if they won't give it a try with brooklyn track then you know you can try one of the other organizations that maybe makes you feel a little better maybe you feel a little bit more comfortable with Run for chinatown maybe you'll feel a little bit more comfortable with Golfing a track club. Maybe you'll feel better with Run, Hustle, Run. Maybe you'll feel a little better with Front Runners. Maybe you'll feel a little better with Boogie Down Bronx. You're, the club I run with, I love them to death, but they're not the be all and end all. There's plenty of other places you can go. If you think you'll feel more comfortable there, I would encourage people to do that. It's really all about running. Of course, I would love for people to come to Brooklyn Track because I think it's great, but it's all about fit and feel and comfort. And I think if, when you talk to people one-on-one, you probably have a better chance of getting people to come in if they have those concerns, but you just have to communicate with people and be out there and be seen. And I think that will help diversify the membership.
3: Is that how you got involved in Black Runners Connection?
0: So (laughs) that's, that's, that's a good story there. So way back, once I started really, really, well, that's not true. I've been running marathons for a while. I came across a Facebook group called the National Black Marathoners Association. And I was like, okay, wow, there's a a Facebook group full of Black people who run marathons? That's insane. Never thought that even existed. So I joined that Facebook group. And for me, who at that point, I probably was a good 10 marathons in at that time. It was amazing. Because as I told you, all the running I've done, I had not seen a lot of minority runners. So now I have a Facebook group of peak runners all over the country, some runners outside of the country who have the love of running and they have a passion and they run all the time just like I do. So it was eye-opening and it was great to know that there are other people like me out there and then it was a great resource. You had people who had run uh, hundreds of marathons, people who ran really fast 5Ks. It ran the gambit of running. So at one point, there was a meetup in Miami in 2015. Some people were doing the full, some people were doing the half. A friend of mine, James Ravenel, there were a a bunch of people who were meeting up. He kind of decided, let's have one main meetup. And that way we could corral everybody and everybody could go to this meetup. So this way, you get to meet some of these people online who you had been interacting with. So we went down to Miami, probably was about 60 of us. It was great. We had a great time. We hung out at the main meetup. We hung out before the race, after the race. It was an amazing time. At the end of the meetup, because we had set up a separate Facebook group. It was an event at that time. So we had set up a separate group just for that event. So after the race, we kept posting pictures. We kept interacting with each other. We had such a great time. So a couple of people went to James. and was like, hey, James, you know what? Don't delete the group. Keep the group open. And what we'll do is we'll just add different runners that we know to the group. Little did we know, we just kept adding people and adding people. And that turned into the Facebook group Black Runners Connection. So basically, we came out of the National Black Marathon Association. And just like MBMA is, it's just a group of runners from all over the world Mostly minorities, we always like to say we're not Black exclusive. You can be any race and join, but it's primarily minority runners. And it's just a place where we can all talk about running and interact, talk about routes. It's developed over the years to where now where there's big races, you know, a lot of times people will meet up if there's not one main meetup under where a lot of the BRC members will go. Usually people will link up and do post-race stuff, pre-race stuff. And it's just an opportunity to just grow this running community. And just like the the running community has really grown with with social media, Black Runners Connection has really grown. At this point now, I think we have about over 8,000 members in the Facebook group. And it's just a great resource to have and a great way to be able to converse with other people who look like you and have that same passion for running that you do.
1: So what are your impressions of the ultra-running scene, which you've been getting into much more so recently compared to marathon or even shorter distance? Because historically, the ultra-marathon scene, especially with a lot of it being on trails, is is not very welcoming for Black people or any minorities.
0: I'll start the answer by this. When I started back in the 90s, running 99.9% of the places you go, there's just not a lot of minorities. So that's... It, that's just is what it is. So you're going to have to accept that. Now, ultras, you're right, are whole different ball game. depending on where you're running. Ultimately, in a scenario where there's not a lot of minorities, you're going to find some environments where people are not going to be particularly welcoming or happy to see. Uh, again, that's just part of being in America. I try not to let that stop me from doing the races that I want to do and the things that I want to do doesn't mean that I'm not careful. I'm not one that's going to race just anywhere because of that concern. I don't have a desire to do the 50 states. There's just certain parts of the United States. I just feel as a black man, I just don't need to go to. Right or wrong, that's just how it is. The only way that's going to change is for people to get out there and run these races, run these ultras, be seen, be a presence out there, show that we can do this stuff, that's the only way to begin to change the perception. Now, racism is racism. It's probably never, ever going to 100% go away because it's in the DNA of this country. However, if you want something to change, you have to be willing to be a little uncomfortable and put yourself in these situations. Now, doesn't mean you have to be uncomfortable to the point where you feel your safety is in danger, or you have to put yourself in an environment where you feel that people are just nasty to you because of your gender, your sexual orientation, the color of your skin. You don't have to put yourself in those situations. How does that change? We have to put pressure on the race directors, we have to point this stuff out to them, and we have to do th- force them to do something about it when we encounter this stuff. We have a lot of power in our dollar, where we spend our money, who we spend our money with. If you're these races, if these environments, if they are not treating you the way you want to be treated, certainly do not certainly let them know about it. I say certainly put it out there. make it public because a lot of times people don't want this stuff to be public. You put it out there. And you hold them accountable. Stop spending your money. Tell your friends to stop spending their money. And then that should hopefully have an effect because if there's one thing America loves is the dollar. So if you hit people in their pocket, then they'll start to listen. Hopefully things will change, but they'll start to listen. That's one of the ways you get people to listen. Nathan, you know, if we don't go to these races... If we don't go to these environments, then they're just going to continue being exactly as they are because there's no reason for them to change because nobody's forcing them to change. So if they have a couple of minority runners and they're nasty, they say something nasty or they're not welcoming, or they're just nasty or mean to people and nobody says anything and nobody does anything about it, nothing's going to change. It really shouldn't be on us to force people to treat you like a normal person. But again, this is America, and this is how America works. So if we wanted to change, if we want to make them change, we have to hold them accountable and stop giving them our dollars. Luckily, the ultras I've done, I haven't had any problems. Again, I've been very, I've been very, very fortunate. I can't imagine what it would be like. You know, I'm usually a pretty calm, level-headed person. I can't imagine what it would be like somebody comes out their face or says something out of pocket. I, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Again, when we have runners to encounter these things, I think it's very important not to let it slide, to be loud and vocal about it and put it out there and force them to address it because that's when you learn a lot about people when they're forced to deal with things they don't want to. Goes back to what, like we talked about 2020, a lot of uncomfortable conversations, a lot of comfortable things were going on and a lot of people dealt with it by not saying anything and that was okay with them. But to a lot of other people, that wasn't okay. And how did they know that wasn't okay? Because people said it to them nonstop. It's like, yo, your silence right now speaks volumes and it's not acceptable to me. So it's the same thing. You have to hold them, you have to hold them accountable. That's hopefully how things will change, you know? It's never going to change overnight. This is America. Racism is American as apple pie. But to get things to change, you have to do something about it. And in the ultra community, I think there is definitely a movement to get more diversity. And I hope it continues because that's a way to get things to change. Hopefully that will continue and we'll start to see more changes and less negativity.
1: You support a lot of races by African-American race directors, um, race in Atlanta from our friend Tess Obohmihan Marshall, who was on episode 17 for any listeners that haven't heard it yet. Pace runs by teamwork, Goldfinger Track Club. Did you make a conscious effort to do this?
0: Oh, absolutely. It's important to support these organizations. And I'll tell you why. So there's a lot of people, especially here in New York, who think New York Roadrunners is the be all and end all Of running. Their events are it. And why would I want to do anybody else's race? And that's not the case. Again, Roadrunners does what they do, but there are plenty of other organizations that can put on a race and give you a quality race experience. It's important, especially as a minority, to pay for these races and show support to these organizations who are run by people that look like you, who have members who live in your neighborhoods. For people who live in these neighborhoods, you give them money, that money is spent in those neighborhoods. I think it's the ability to have some diversity and there's just different experiences. A gold finger race is definitely different from a road runners race. NYC team work race, is different from a NYC runs race, but they're all quality experiences. So you have to be open to these different types of races and experiences. Just because a race only has 100 people it doesn't have 10,000 doesn't mean it's a bad race. But I think more importantly, when you have these events and you have these organizations, for that are run by and are the participants are generally not the quote unquote traditional runners that you see not the usual white male or skinny white male skinny white female runners that you see on the runners world magazines when you look at these races these are not the people who are putting on the races and are competing in these races it's important to support them and again Where some of these races are, they're in locations that don't typically have races. So it's great to get that exposure. So you have to support everybody. I'm big on supporting the smaller organizations and just support, support, support. I think that's very important. That's the only way you start to make a big difference. You know, these organizations may be small now or not have large membership, but even Neil Roadrunners was small at some point. Everybody starts somewhere.
3: Let's talk about representation. Let's talk about Endurance Ambassador for Gatorade. What does that mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, so I was very fortunate. One of my friends, she was an ambassador for Gatorade last year, and she had asked me if I would be interested, and I was like, "Uh, sure I would. So um, I put in an application, and luckily they accepted me into their ambassador program this year. So basically what that is, is it gives me an opportunity to not only represent Gatorade Endurance and represent some of their products, which I'm happy to say I've used Gatorade Endurance products before and I think their products are very good. It's one thing just to just represent something because they'll take you. It's another thing for to actually use the products and actually support them. So I actually like Gatorade Endurance products. I think they're really good. But again, I think it's always important when to be an ambassador especially as a person of color, to be out there and to be seen and to show that we do the same things that a bunch of other people do. It's just running, it's competing, it's going out there, it's doing your best, and it's just having a good time. So Gatorade, thankfully, chose me this year. So I will probably run a couple of races with Gatorade. And I think the main thing I would like to accomplish is just to be seen. And just to show the diversity of runners out here and to be able to represent not only a team, Brooklyn Track Club, so always represent them, represent Black Runners Connection, just represent for the minority community that we can do things, we can be ambassadors, we can be representatives of these large companies, and we can make a difference and we can do it too.
2: So is the tagline for Devon as an ambassador... uh be like Devon,
3: how when, you know, when
2: Michael Jordan did his commercial, you can be like like Devon.
0: (laughs) Hey, I tell people all the time, what I do, I'm not special. I'm just a guy who loves running. And I do it all the time because I really have a passion for it. But I encourage people to do things all the time. If you talk to people on my team, they'll tell you, I encourage people all the time. Hey, you want to do what you haven't tried that? Try it. You can do it, you know, because I think a lot of times we underestimate ourselves and we question what we can do. So sometimes you just need people to just, who believe in you and who who tell you that you can do stuff. So that's really what it's all about. That That's what Devon's all about. Just going out there and trying. Sometimes you're going to try and fail. Sometimes you're going to run a race and it's going to suck and your time's not going to be great but you know what, you learn from it and you try again. That's what it's all about. For me, running has really been a lot about growth and myself and who I am. And I just try to bring that positivity to other people. And you don't have to be a crazy lunatic like me and do 37 marathons and run ultras and run 15 loops around Crossway Park because I openly admit that's insane, okay? we have to start there, it's definitely crazy. But if you wanna do it, you definitely can. And you just have to put in the work and you have to believe and you can do it, so that's more be like Devon, just uh, believe in yourself and just try some crazy things.
3: Crazy things. So, what's next on the calendar for 2022? So, I have, I have a few things coming up this year. I have a, a half
0: marathon coming up in Alaska, that's in a couple of weeks, and then uh, that's crazy. All right, <laughs> you know, and what's crazy about it, Jamie, is that in the information of the race. They tell you, you might have to watch out for a bear crossing. So, you know, if you see a bear on the yes! course, stop <laughs> running. Okay. And I'm like, look, okay. First of all, you didn't have to tell me if I see a bear to not run. Okay. I already know that number one, but it's crazy that it happens enough that they have to put it in the race information. So hopefully there will be no bear encounters. that marathon will go smoothly. Hopefully. In July, I'm going to do marathons on two days back to back. I did it a couple years ago in 2018 and I've been waiting to do it again. So this year I'm going to do it. So I'm doing two races in Montana, one on Saturday and one on Sunday. The elevation on that is insane, but hey, you know, it is what it is. You got to do crazy stuff every now and then. Um, we have a relay team that we do for the Hood to Coast relay. We had a team in last year and our goal was to win our age group. And we came in fourth place in our age group. So we're going back this year. The Goal hasn't changed. We got the band back together. And then the last thing I think is probably Toronto. That's my last marathon of the year. Toronto, nice, flat marathon, international. Haven't been to Toronto. Hopefully the weather cooperates in October. Those that know me know I generally load up my race schedule with races because I love to race. That's just what I do. So that's just most of the stuff right now. We can have this conversation in August, and I'll tack on, like, six races.
2: So on top of running away from bears, you know, right. it would be like Devon experience has gone to that level now. So now you're at, what, 37 marathons? So this is going to bring you to how many?
0: At the end of the year, everything goes well, I'll be at 40.
2: Okay, so... This is a great segue, now that we have reached Hot Mic, the section of the podcast, where you get to speak for two minutes uninterrupted about anything that you like. We didn't get to do too much Marvel, but that's okay. Maybe next time. So we'll give you two minutes, which is usually, I guess for you, that could be, was that like, an 800?
0: About a, uh, that's pretty good. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. About an eight on a really fast day.
2: So Nathan's got the timer. So whenever you're ready, go.
0: The changes we've seen in the running community over the past five, six years is pretty amazing. It's gone from what I feel has been a predominantly uh, white environment. It's still predominantly white, but there are the explosion, the number of brown faces into the running community has just been amazing. Definitely not something I imagined when I started running. It's been great to see people of all shapes and sizes and backgrounds and environments out there pushing themselves 5Ks, 10Ks, halves, fulls, ultras. It's amazing. And that's really what it's supposed to be about. To me, running is really about pushing yourself and finding things that you never thought you could do and achieving those things. And it's also about other people. It's cheering on other people. It's supporting other people. It's really just being positive and supportive and kind of a we're all in this together mentality. That's been the biggest thing I've taken from being in a a team, being in the running community. When it's done right, we all support each other. And there's so much going on in this country with abortion, gun rights and violence and equality. There's just so much negativity right now. And we all need to find a way to deal with that. And the way a lot of us deal with it is running. To all my solo runners out there, I think if you're a solo runner, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's your happy place and that's where you're comfortable, do it. But I think if you really want to get a a great feel for people and humanity and the way it should be. I think if you can find you a supportive group that will cheer you on and tell you you're amazing and pull you up when you struggle and let you know it's okay to fall and help dust you up and get you back up and keep you getting out there and let you know you can do anything, I think that really is what it's all about. There's a lot of that in the running community. Um, We need more of it in the running community, like we need more of it in the world, but there's a lot of it out there. I think if you really can find an environment like that, you can thrive and you can do amazing things. We're all, all of our diversity and all of the different backgrounds and experiences we have, there's no need to keep all of that to yourself. You need to get around people who are different from you. It can help expand your, your horizons, it can help expand your experiences, it can help make you better. And it's all about trying to be the best that you can be. So if you ever see me at a race, you always come up and holler at me, say hello. I'm always gonna give you something positive. I'm probably gonna try to encourage you to do something crazy because that's just what I do. But it's all about people doing, encouraging and supporting each other and trying to be the best that we can all be together. And you win. I win. That's how I look at it. And I'm just going to leave with a quote from the legendary Power Malu. And as he likes to say, you know, uh, I'm probably going to mess it up. But, you know, it's like get out of that ego system and get with this ecosystem. I think that sums it up best. So shout out to my man Power. And I'm going to say that's probably 205. What I got,
3: Nathan? What I got?
0: Close enough, only 409, 410.
3: Ah, <laughs> Un- unbelievable, as Power would say. Unbelievable, unbelievable. unbelievable. I was going to
2: say, I think, I think, uh, the lady with the stroller passed you. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: did too your bad. two, and then you had to run it back, so it's fine. Yeah, it,
2: exactly. It was two squared,
0: that's what it was, two squared. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Devon, Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. It's been an illuminating conversation. So much perspective to take us through New York from the 80s all the way up to the present day and see the evolution of the city as a running city. We look forward to you know seeing everything you're doing with Brooklyn Track Club and Gatorade Ambassadorship and supporting all the groups. And good luck with all your races this year and next year and the year after that. And... That brings us to the end of another episode. So I want to thank Inez and Jamie and, of course, our listeners. We'll talk to you next time on the next episode of Let's Get Uncomfortable. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Uncomfortable. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe,
0: rate, and review us on the App Store and follow us on Spotify.